This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello, I'm Jake Cantor and welcome to Talking TV. It's been eight days since Richard Desmond flogged Channel 5 to MTV owner Viacom and with the benefit of a bit of distance, we'll consider what the deal means for all involved. Also on the show, Hinterland producer and writer Ed Thomas explains why the Welsh drama has become hot property. And finally, join us on the Talking TV sofa as we preview Dave's new show, 24 Hours to Go Broke, and BBC Two's Welcome to Rio. That's all coming up over the next half an hour. Aboard the good ship Talking TV this week is broadcast columnist Stephen D. Wright. You've, uh, you're back from your holes. I am, yeah. My Where trip. have you been? I went to Cambodia. Very nice. Yeah. And, uh, 100 it... degrees and piss cheap. Also on the show is Peter White, broadcast international editor. How, how's your week been? Back from China. Um, yeah, I was going to say. Week, uh, Ni Hao. Well, hold that thought because we'll, uh, we'll we'll come to that in a minute. Uh, but first up, where else but Channel 5? Uh, pending regulatory approval, the public service broadcaster will become the property of US media giant Viacom in the coming months. Viacom prized the asset away from Northern and Shell's Richard Desmond in a £450 million deal last week and has plans to boost Channel 5's content spend and collaboration with the likes of MTV and Comedy Central. As for Desmond, well, he's made a fat profit out of the Big Brother broadcaster, which he originally bought for £103 million in 2010. The sales process hasn't been without hiccups, most notably the withdrawal of Discovery last month, but Desmond stuck to his guns and got his price. There's no doubt that the the UK television industry will be a duller place in his absence. Pete, is this good news for, for the UK broadcasting industry? It, it's interesting news. It, Viacom sees Channel 5 as another channel. It, it'll be interesting to see what they what they actually do with it. They, they've said they're going to spend more money. Um, they've said they're going to sort of try and try and co-produce with their other channels in the States and, uh, and across the world. So it will be interesting to see what impact over the next few months that has for, for programming in the UK. Um, I think the concern was that they're just going to turn it into a sort of depository for, for some of the US MTV series, but they've sort of been... been a bit shown. more ambition than that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Tell us about Viacom the US because I'm sure they're a fairly unknown quantity to some readers and listeners. They're just this huge US media company um, owned by a mercurial figure called Sumner Redstone who's uh, in his 90s and is, refuses to talk about succession plans by saying every time uh, he's interviewed he says I'm not going to talk about succession because I'm not going to die. It, it's a very well run, it's run by a guy called Philip Dowman who is uh, a, you know, an accountant by trade, he's a, he's a suit but he can, you know, he's, he's done very well with the, the figures. They own a, a raft of channels, I mean MTV is obviously the biggest, Comedy Central and Nickelodeon. And then there's a whole other bunch of US channels like Spike TV, TV Land. And they own a, they own a film studio. There's a, the part of Paramount, so they, they have movie side of things. Are there, um, And it's just one of these huge US media firms. And they see, they're sort of maxed out in the States, and they see international as their sort of next big growth bet. Stephen, you've been working with MTV on X on the Beach. Mm-hmm. Tell us about what what that was like, and do you expect that to to sort of go forward into the new era of Channel 5? Possibly. I mean, MTV are quite tough bosses. Um, You know, they're a very cool channel, but Viacom are are quite a sort of scary corporate world. You know what I mean? That's the thing about them. They they, they look cool, they sound cool, 
but they you know they they're a massive giant media kind of organization and that does run through everything so there's a lot of sign off there's a lot of corporate stuff that you go through america etc etc i mean you actually deal with england about the editorial but the the business affairs side is is kind of legendarily tough so i would think the channel 5 thing it might be that that'll actually get harder for producers it might be might be good to have more money to make more programs but the business affairs side if it is the viacom model could be really hard. That's interesting. So, yeah. there, what, why are there more hurdles, and what are know, those I think, hurdles? It's, I think, I think England or Britain is a little bit sort of more relaxed about stuff, whereas the Americans take everything so seriously. You know, I mean, they really are. Every you know, every contract's a forty-five page contract, and da 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 da. And the, you know, there's a lot of legal, there's a lot of all that kind of stuff. It's, it's. I mean, that's the stuff I don't care about. So I might be wrong. What I'm saying, but it's. You know, I'm more about the editorial, and the editorial yeah. is, is what Britain is sort of. That's how the commissioners work, and the, the legal affairs and the business affairs is this boring part that sort of people in the back office do, but that is the sort of stuff that the Americans get right. You know, they 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 hold the rights, they do this. Da, da, da. So there's a lot more of that going to be happening. You know, a, a note of caution for kind of jubilant producers who think they're going to get more commissions. Is that even more pertinent given how Richard Desmond approaches Channel Five at the moment? I mean, possibly he's a you know a maverick, but he was also one of these people who was like you know a, a sledgehammer to crack a nut. You know, he used force and personality. But he also used that thing of which which all channels are doing now. Everybody's doing it, which is the producers are innocents that come in with a bowl and you know they're begging for food, and the the, the channels sort of go well okay, but we'll only give you half of what we give you last time, and you go thank you very much sir, and you go away you know and you can never turn your back on them and all that sort of stuff. So that is the that is the business model of TV right now, but I think the Americans are possibly a little bit scarier. Uh, and we're going to miss Richard Desmond, Pete, do you think? Yeah, some of the stories over the last week, you know, from the famous uh, spat with Endemol, Tim Hinks, and, uh, you know, I think it's Alfred the butler that, that Richard always uh, pulls out in his fights with Alan Sugar. And you buying know, Ben Frau Ferrari. Buying Ben Frau Ferrari. There's some fantastic stories about Richard Desmond. I mean, you know, Private Eye would, you know, has a field day with... with uh, <laughs> It will be a quieter place without without Desmond, but equally I think it will uh, it might be a bit more straightforward. And what do you make of uh, what it means for, for the likes of Group M Entertainment, who obviously co-produce a lot of Channel 5 shows? It, it will be very interesting to see whether, whether Viacom and, and MTV and such work with, with Group M. They don't at the moment. And I don't think they'll be too quick to get in that boat because I think they'll want to, to sort of at least highlight to producers that they, they don't need that. Um, so, I mean, Group M has been kind of moving away from only working with Channel 5. They've got, you know, Channel 4 shows and ITV stuff. So, so I don't think it'll be the end of, of, of Group M as a, as a force in, in the UK. But I, I would wonder whether they'll have as much influence at, at 5 as they, as they did. OK, we'll move on. Uh, wonder why China has been making headlines in broadcast over the past fortnight. Uh, we'll wonder no more. It's all to do with a pact-led delegation to the Asian country last week, which was attended by 30 UK indies. Uh, Channel 4 was also in town, with Chief Executive David Abraham promising to increase co-productions with Chinese broadcasters. Peter White, our very own broadcast uh, international editor, you were there as well. Yeah. Uh, it, was it as fascinating as it sounds on paper? It was like uh, being on a school trip with 30 indies and uh, and David Abraham and John McVeigh and, and, uh, and Martin Davidson from BBC. Um, it was this wonderful opportunity to see how on earth the Chinese do, do TV business. Um, we were on a island or a man-made island called Double Happiness Island. It was this sort of resort funded by the Chinese Merchant Bank. And they got a bunch of Brits together with, uh, you know, some of the the sort of commissioners and, and channel bosses in in China, and you know, ostensibly for the for the Brits to try and pitch the Chinese. 
Chinese ideas. Ended up being a little bit more, I think the Chinese wanted to go the other way and pitch the Brits some ideas, and there was a bit of back and forth. Did you get an insight into how tough it is to do business out there? Yeah, every Chinese producer says, how much will that cost me? How much will that cost me? Even though they they do have a lot more money than many of the channels in, in the UK, just by pure size, they are very concerned as to how they spend it. It will be very interesting to see if any of these indies, you know, we're talking about companies like Zigzag and Outline and Reef, all had some seemingly great meetings where the Chinese were really receptive to ideas, you know, whether they want to try and remake House of Tiny Tearaways or, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Um, it'll be interesting to see if, if any of that comes out, whether they actually end up making this or, you know, in fact, they just they shuffle off and, and go and decide to do their own thing. Stephen, do you see China as a land of opportunity? I've been warned off thinking about China before by people who have done business over there by, who, who always say, your ideas will be stolen. And that's the sort of... So, yes, there's a massive market... But the big risk seems to be copyright, theft, or whatever it is. And the idea of, you know, you go in with your format and somebody goes, yeah, great, great, and then they'll just make it anyway. There was a cracking story so, one of the producers had. They, they met a Chinese producer, and the Chinese producer said, oh, my God, I'm so glad to meet you. I'm, I'm ripping off your idea in China, and, and I really could use your help in, in producing just it. Just nakedly open about and, it. And they didn't yeah. seem anything wrong with it. They said, we'll pay you to, to try and help us make this. And, and the producer, the indie, sort of in thinking, well, that's sort of a backwards way of getting a, a format option out of it. So... <laughs> It does happen. It's just a slightly different way of doing business. And David Abraham was there. Yes. What was he up to? Yeah, David was kind of, he was our big potato. The the literal translation of big cheese in China seems to be big potato. Um, <laughs> he sort of led the delegation. The Chinese, it, it's a very deferential culture. Um, who is the boss? Who is the leader? And and, and David was, was, certainly, was certainly the UK leader. Um, he was kind of just banging the drum for the Indies, saying, you know, you guys should work with this this lot. They, they do good business for us. One of the things, you know, he, he sort of opened the door to, to Chinese co-productions. Again, that'll be interesting to see whether that happens. They've just announced this sort of big drive for international drama. And and he was saying to me that actually, if you think we could do a, you know, a big, big drama spy thriller, and there could be Chinese money involved. So there could be Chinese co-production with that. So it'll be, it'll be fascinating to see whether whether anything comes of, of David's uh, time in, in China. He, he was certainly meeting some of their big potatoes. <laughs> and just, uh, just before we move on quickly, uh, Channel 4, as we are recording, are announcing their annual uh, report. Uh, it shows that content spend is broadly flat at £429 million and its operating loss has been halved to £15 million. Uh, among the programming highlights, uh, it sounds like they are going to uh, formally take a format called Married at First Sight uh, to series, uh, which is an interesting one, isn't it, Pete? You know a little bit about yeah, this. Yeah, it's a, it's a sort of European format it, where it came out of Red Arrow. It's it's sort of this bizarre, they take a, a group of, of single people and they, they sort of go on a, on a blind date, except they're getting married, and then they spend six weeks living with that person and and you know going out with that person and then at the end they decide whether they want to stay married or or they get a get a divorce so it's a sort of twist on a strange dating format. potential to be quite controversial it's i'd a, imagine the daily mail will gobble that up won't they Stephen? yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. it reminds me of a thing we once planned to do on the word where you'd win the chance to marry danny bear and i was the researcher that had to find a place where you could marry on the friday and get divorced on the sunday and uh, Gibraltar was the nearest place. It took me weeks of, you know, legal kind of uh, wading through. We finally sort of sorted it, and then Danny Bear's dad said, no, she's only 17, I'm not doing it. Oh, bollocks. It was a great idea. So, you know. 
Oh, great ideas always return, though, don't <laughs> they? Uh, just one final loose end before we move on. Uh, ITV's biggest in- indie acquisition to date. Uh, the company has signed an initial £212 million deal for Leftfield Entertainment Group, the US producer behind history show Porn Stars. Uh, this is a pretty significant acquisition, isn't it, Pete? Yeah, this is the deal that, 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 that gets them in the States. I think the indies they bought in the US before, um, without being too mean, was sort of one-hit wonders where they were companies like Gurdy that makes Duck Dynasty or, or Think Factory that makes Hatfield and McCoys um, or even companies like Digger that, that haven't actually had it, had much commissioned yet. But this is, the, the you know, Left Field Pictures is, is probably the closest we've got to, to, to a super indie in the US non-scripted world run by a guy called Brent Montgomery um, who's sort of described to me as a, a blue-collar Stephen Lambert. Um, so this will really certainly certainly give them, give them the scale in the States. This will arguably makes them the most important unscripted group in the, in the US um, and equally it'll, it'll have sort of repercussions back in the UK uh, Brent you know just became a packed member and is keen to try and break left field into the UK where he can take rights to these shows and then pitch them back to the states which could sort of make ITV a bit more money in the long term so well, Porn Stars is in the UK. Yes. How does that work rights-wise? So he was sort of given a deal. A&E, which he makes that show for, A&E Group, allowed him to, to make that. He made that show for history in the UK. But he doesn't own the rights. He said to me last year, funnily enough, you know, if I owned the international rights to Porn Stars, I'd be a very, very rich man. Um, and it seems that now, after ITV bought him, he uh, he is now. He is indeed a, a very rich man. He is now. <laughs> On that note, we'll, le- we'll leave it there. That's your news. Uh, thanks to Stephen and Peter. Now then, Wales has given the world many things, leaks, male voice choirs and Gareth Bale to name a few, but its latest treasure may just be its best. Set in the sparsely populated climes of Aberystwyth, S4C drama Hinterland follows the work of four detectives as they track down killers through rugged hilltops and windswept fields. The taut and moody four-part series is currently wowing critics and winning over audiences on BBC Four following two separate outings in Wales. The reception has been so warm that Netflix has picked it up in the US and the killing broadcaster DR is taking it to Denmark. Joining us in a moment will be Hinterland co-creator Ed Thomas. But before that, here's DCI Tom Matthias discussing his first case with his new boss. I've got half the cognoscenti of Aberystwyth in their Sunday chinos waiting to meet you up at the university. It's been a busy day, sir. Not every Sunday is like this. I hear you've already mobilised most of the police resources of West Wales. Do you have a body? Not yet. Well, it's a big call for a missing person. It was a vicious attack, sir. And if the victim is Helen Jenkins, she's already lost a great deal of blood. Unless she's had medical attention in the last 12 hours, as far as I'm concerned, this is a murder inquiry. OK. Keep me informed. I will. Uh, welcome, Ed. Thanks for coming in. We welcome. Uh, I touched on it in the introduction, but what have you made uh, of the response to Hinterland? It's been terrific so far. Uh, the budget was tight, as every producer will tell you. The journey- was it tight? It doesn't look tight on screen, I have to say. <laughs> well, good, good. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the tricky bit was, was to make something that we felt was authentic in an area which was uh, we thought we knew in a part of Northern Europe that's not of- often filmed. So then it avoided some of the tropes that you fall into if you set it in an urban place. So budget-wise, it really helped that we didn't have to spend a huge amount of money on a high-tech police station. We could make what we always wanted to make, which was something, local stories with an universal appeal 
in a kind of place that nobody knew anything about and avoid kind of the budget expense that uh, a big urban police station might cost. I mean, you've you've got the Netflix endorsement. Was that a realisation of how far the project has come since uh, since its inception? I think Netflix is terrific for us. It's a good match, I think. If anybody told us two years ago that Netflix would pick it up so early, we'd have been thrilled. And it's in the US, Canada and Scandinavia, I think they've picked it up. You know, all along, there was no precedent for how we put it together, how we financed it, uh, how we platformed it. So the fact that it's been platformed on S4C, then BBC One Wales, and now on BBC Four shows that it's got a traction and a a simplicity, hopefully, that uh, people uh, respond to. So tell us about how the project came about. Ah, that's a tough one. Uh, <laughs> quite simply, we went to S4C and they hadn't uh, got a detective series, so we said, look, every every grown-up channel should have a detective series to call its own. And S4C said, yes, of course, that, that makes perfect <laughs> sense. They come on board really early with some finance, which we could take to market. They only wanted a Welsh-language version because it's a bespoke Welsh-language channel. But financially, the only way it would work is if we did a back-to-back version and attracted um, finance to make an English version to sell internationally, because at that time... Uh, Welsh language drama didn't have any traction internationally and wouldn't have been that attractive to distributors. So the next step uh, in a very long journey was to attract a distributor. All three media came on board and they've been terrific partners. They invested into the project, they saw it, they didn't care how gritty the stories might be, but what they wanted was scale. And coming back to the point I made earlier, uh, Aberystwyth and the hinterland really does have scale. So we wanted to put a lens on that and pretty much come up with a cop show that sets it in the middle of that, doesn't mess around too much with police procedural. The police procedural that any cop show needs is is vital, but then we move it on. So that was the kind of brief, took it to the market. And again, there was no, coming back to a precedent, there was no relationship between BBC Wales and S4C, but we, we brokered one, which is good. Uh, and then you knitted them together yeah in in the fact that they didn't you know it's not really a co-production as such but BBC Wales came on um, enthusiastically and they've been good partners but every step of the way it was more like raising finance for a film than than having one gatekeeper financing the project and away you go the good thing is that it's likely exact because of it because uh, with multiple partners, you have to have a fluid relationship between all the partners. Uh, S4C came on early and they really wanted to deliver to their audience, which it did. And then BBC Wales came up with the idea that they would have a hybrid version. And the hybrid version includes 10% English. Along the way, we also needed um, European uh, media fund money. We needed support from Welsh Assembly Government and uh, we're part of the Tenopolis Group and Tenopolis also invested as well as us as well. So putting all that happy partnership together, lots of investment. <laughs> but that's the way drama is now, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I, I, definitely. And, and you have to be patient and make sure that all partners are, are happy. And that so far has been um, a really good thing. It's meant that, that S4C had an exclusive in the Welsh language, BBC Wales had a premiere in a hybrid version, which is 90% English and some Welsh used. And BBC Four also have a platform for that. And internationally, it'll be sold. Some uh, charities will pick up the Welsh version and some people will pick up the English version. So it's up to all three. Yeah, I mean, so the, the, the English version, when it flits into Welsh, it does give it a certain authenticity, I think. I mean, could, could you talk to us about the challenges of filming in two distinct languages? <laughs> I will. It's tricky for the actors. I mean, you just do it shot by shot. So, so you, practically, you just have to you have to film the scene twice. Or, yeah, you know, every shot have, you yeah, do twice. Shot, yeah. yeah. I mean, the tricky bit. If you really ask us, we needed. I mean, none of us were keen on having a really dialogue-heavy script. 
Uh, and as we go along in the series, the scripts get lighter. The practical thing for that is that landscapes and people in landscapes not speaking only has to be shot once. <laughs> but largely for the actors, uh, when it comes to the interview room scenes, which is they're driven by performance and they're driven by dialogue and they're driven by information and they're driven by the genre. I think the actors uh, really found that hard to uh, to get used to. But once they did, they flew with it. And the versions aren't exactly the same because languages, you can't really concretely translate one language to the other. We're having subtle differences. So I think English is a much more concrete language. It's got a bigger vocabulary. And Welsh is a bit um, slightly more poetic, slightly more colloquial sometimes. I think the difference between Welsh and English is English feels like classical music and Welsh sometimes feels like jazz. Richard sometimes <laughs> says the Welsh scenes were, were shorter. But I don't know, that may be the perception within it. And, and the, the, the 10% of Welsh, Yeah. where did you decide to insert the Welsh language in the English version? Well, we wanted to come up with a, a drama that an outsider goes to a place that very few people know anything about, Tom Mathias, so that the largely 98% of the time we see the drama unfold through his eyes. In other words, he's the key to solving the case. So we rarely cut away to anybody else. So the fact that he doesn't speak Welsh in the in the hybrid version emphasizes his outsiderness and his his team all speak Welsh when he goes into the heartland into rural communities of you know pretty much frontier towns he can observe and watch and he gets a translation off screen as it were but it really helped his isolation the character I hope is somebody that well I think I I know people have really warmed to he's very isolated he lives in a caravan on the in the middle of nowhere very slowly we reveal uh, some of his backstory so you're toying with your actors yeah. a little bit <laughs> yeah but but that thing of of him observing became a a kind of template for the show because in all the films we see the crime scene through his eyes so there are lots of shots he gets to the crime scene and there's very little said but there are always numerous shots of what he sees. So really, it's an open opportunity for those people who love the genre to be able to think, OK, what's he seeing and what am I seeing and what am I seeing that he's not and vice versa. So it's a, for those people who love the genre, they like to see all those pictures of clues. Some of them are red herrings, but it certainly dictated the, the pace of the storytelling and the tone of it. And I think, um, as somebody mentioned, the hinterland landscape is a character in the in the in the films. I mean, hinterland is a place, but also it's a kind of state of mind for Matthias. So it, it, it operates on uh, all kinds of levels. Hopefully, so you've got the BBC yeah. coming on board to formally yeah. co-produce the second series. What what does that mean? Does that mean a bit more ambition? Yeah, I think ambition all round. I think uh, series one really sets a, a kind of benchmark of what we intended to do, and we've reached a kind of base camp. And I think as we move on to series two, there's a brilliant opportunity to really explore the characters interrogate the stories in the landscape and and still preserve that thing about local stories hopefully with an universal appeal and I think people really like this idea of authenticity it's one person's authenticity of course is another person's falsehood but but wherever we've played and wherever platform it's it's been on people really like and respond to the fact that that um it's not a it's it's the kind of UK but the Welsh language gives it a kind of tilt so it's the UK but not quite as we know it and I think that adds to the perception of the um of the show and also anything subtitled means your relationship with the with what you're watching is different. You can't tweet and Facebook and feed the kids you while you're watching. It. You have to read it. So it slightly alters it. So um, I think for series two, 
we interrogate more, go uh, probably reveal a little more about uh, Matthias, those people who are desperate to know more about him. But it's a great opportunity for us to really carry on the journey. And just finally, I mean, do you think there should be more Welsh drama? Yeah, why not? I mean, the, the Scandies have helped Im- immensely in terms of, you know, helping Middle England to consume subtitle drama. And I think back to the way people consume, I think that's a big plus. So it doesn't really matter what language it is. If the drama is good and the stories are good and the precinct is interesting, then you know, it doesn't really matter what language it's in. Do you think the BBC should be doing more to support the creative community in, in Wales? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's um, hopefully Hinterland's shown that there's an opportunity and an interest in homegrown drama in in English and Welsh and looking for something which is you can't just sew the Welsh language onto something which doesn't feel real I think what the trick is is to link that to a version of authenticity good storytelling and um, good characterization damn good stories well told and is that is that more pressing now that S4C is majority funded by the license fee yeah, definitely. There's always there's a good historian, Wills, who's who's passed away. Gwynalf Williams talks about every decade as rupture and then reinvention. And the reinvention bit is really interesting. With a you know global market, in terms of how things are presented, you know, conventional TV is becoming funded and structured in a different way. Platforms are emerging everywhere, Netflix and Amazon. And I think everybody looks at what kind of stories people want to consume. And there's a broad spectrum out there. And sometimes the traditional gatekeepers uh, have still got valuable jobs to do. But what's interesting is not they can't always be across the taste of everything. And it means that other platforms offer opportunities for other voices. And those if those voices are in minority languages, but the stories are compelling, there'll always be a market for it. Fantastic, Ed. Thank you for coming in today. Uh, Hinterland continues on BBC4 on Monday the 12th of May at 9pm. Finally this episode, it's previews time, and I'm pleased to say that Peter White and Stephen D. Wright are back with us. First for your consideration is Dave's latest original commission, 24 Hours to Go Broke. Inspired by classic film Brewster's Millions, the five-part Renegade Pictures series follows pairs of celebrities as they attempt to fritter away £8,000 in a single day. Each of the double acts are transported to unusual locations around the world for their mission. And here's a taste of the first episode with David Baddiel and Richard Herring ordering room service from a presidential hotel suite in Armenia. Uh, I'd like to order some room service to the presidential suite. I think we should get some black caviar. Could we have some black caviar, please? I'll have a tiramisu. Do they have any champagne? I can't see it on... Uh, champagne. Do you have champagne? Could I have a Golden Palace ice cream? You would like a Golden Palace ice cream? You don't have it. Can I get a pack I... of Dunhill cigarettes? You don't have Dunhill. Uh, what, what about Ararat cigarettes? Ararat cigarettes. Can we have them? Hang on, can I put you on to Richard? It's the crossest man I've ever spoken Hello. to. What He's so cross. I can't speak to him anymore. He's as angry as some viewers will be watching this. Uh, Stephen, you're, you're nattering away. What, what, do you, what do you make of that? I was a bit disappointed by this. It's an old idea that's been pitched a million times, and I've seen a couple of versions of this. I mean, famously, Chris Evans did it on his Boys and Girls, where you won a lot of money, but you had to get rid of it, you know, and... I have a horribly kind of old-fashioned sort of... I find it a bit uh, tasteless to get rid of money, particularly in a recession. And I thought it was quite weird in Armenia because that's a lot of money in Armenia. They, You know, they really were, like, wasting money. 
And that sort of slightly stuck in my throat while I was watching it because they were throwing the money away, basically. I'm glad you, th- you think that because I thought it was really offensive, actually. The oh, fact that they rock go. up in a relatively poor country yeah. and I mean, cheer sort of when d- they squander like, yeah. thousands yeah. of pounds on, I, on a roulette wheel. I just like, yeah. This I mean, is that, not that quite to right. me, that, by then I'd sort of become a bit inured to it. But at the beginning, when they're just sort of giving money to people in the street and then sort of laughing about it, it I mean, I don't think the comedians are being unpleasant, but it comes across a bit like that. And it's an odd thing. So, I, I mean, if it was in a more... I mean, I mean I'd like to see a, an episode where it's not in a third world country, because possibly then it has a different thing. But basically, giving away or wasting money does seem slightly offensive. At the end of the episode, they seem to be encouraging a homeless man to come and have a drink with them, which I thought was, you know, sort of icing on the cake. You know, mm. sort of get this homeless guy off the street and, and you know, buy him, a, buy him a pint of lager. Did it make good television? Well, that's the other thing. It didn't feel... Because obviously it's a conceit to do a travelogue in another sort of way and everything. And, of course, the the idea of all these programmes that always happens is you have a team of researchers out there and interpreters and fixers who have set up the most interesting things and they stumble across it. But this felt a little bit like they really did just turn up and had no idea what they were doing. It actually felt quite under-researched. And that slightly offended me because I wanted to see... I've never been to Armenia. I don't know anything about it. I still don't, having watched the programme. You know, I saw a couple of kind of unusual characters, but no culture, no depth. Just the two of them making sort of cracking jokes at each other. They felt very insular, and the country was a bit sort of a kind of a, another thing that you weren't really bothered about. It was like trying, trying to get rid of I, I was disappointed, basically. There was one point where Badil and Herring were almost trying to justify it to themselves. Yeah. They were sitting in the oh, restaurant every, and, they, yeah, and they were saying, oh, every TV every show Every TV show this. wastes money. It's yeah. like, but that's the thing, because they obviously had a moral problem with it. Uh, and, they, and It was clear they were uncomfortable. Of course, that's yeah. the thing. It, 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 because of, I think because it's so poor where they were, and they were literally, you know, they had a year's salary maybe in their hands, which they were wasting on cups of coffee or whatever. Yeah. And then they were sort of complaining, oh, this cup of coffee's only £35 or whatever, when it should, you know, it's like, I keep trying. I'm, so I'm trying not to swear because I'm getting angry about it. Because it was kind of, it was offensive. It was a bit tonally. It felt odd. You know, you'd think the comedians could make something with this, but the the sort of format pushing them to get rid of the money, became made them act in a different way. If the money became secondary and they were actually there to enjoy themselves and to examine in a sort of journalistic way, I think it would have been a lot better. But this kind of desperate need to give money to stunned passers-by who didn't know what the hell was going on and looked a bit shocked and or exploited felt odd, you know? Hey, are we being humorless or do you agree? No, I mean, the, my biggest problem with it was that Richard Pryor wasn't in it. So. <laughs> uh, that would have been quite difficult, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> now, now it would have. But but yeah, it was Brewster's Millions does done you know, poorly. And, and I don't even think it was necessarily Richard Herring or David Baddiel's fault. It was it didn't seem to be much yeah. to it. And I, they're going to do the series with a whole bunch of other comedians. So mm. so now, even if you sort of like David Baddiel or Richard Herring, you're going to be able to see Sean Walsh and uh, you know others to do the same in other, from the list, other very poor countries. Interestingly, the original budget that they had was going to be £10,000. So I don't know whether that was an issue on the production. And it's gone to eight, or, hasn't it? it's gone to eight, or whether they just felt it was too much money to fritter I mean, away. They could have done the same show for £1,000, where it wouldn't have felt so tasteless and you would have had the travelogue anyway. But the £8,000, you know, was too much in that It felt country. an arbitrary figure. Well, as that's well, the thing. It? It, it just uh, felt weird, you know, and it was... 
And they looked stunned by having all this money in that suitcase full of cash. It's like, I just wanted somebody to steal it. <laughs> all I kept thinking is, you know, any minute now, they'll put the case down and someone will run away with it. And then I would have laughed. <laughs> OK, maybe we should leave it there on that one. Um, our next preview is BBC Two's follow-up to the BAFTA award-winning Welcome to Lagos and Welcome to India, which takes us to sunny South America. Welcome to Rio will focus on the ingenuity of some of the 1.4 million people living in the city's slums without power, electricity, sewage or water. Produced by Keo Films, it aims to get under the skin of Rio before it hosts this summer's World Cup and the 2016 Olympics. Let's hear a clip from the setup to the first episode. Millions of you are planning to visit Rio in the next couple of years and we're looking forward to seeing you. But we have a few things to tidy up before you arrive. The government wants you to feel safe. So top of the list is chasing the armed drug trafficking gangs out of the city's many favelas. It's a process they call pacification. Pete, this was slightly less contrived, factual fair. It was a perfectly, perfectly decent hour of television. It was a, a perfectly decent documentary. I wasn't particularly excited by it. I thought it took quite a while to, to get going, especially with the uh, the focus on the fellow who sort of lifted fridges up Rocky. the stairs. Rocky. Rocky. Uh, you know, he, he was a, a fellow who lifted fridges up the stairs, and it wasn't until the end where, <laughs> where there seemed to be any heart to it. You know, there were some other strange characters. I don't know why they needed to show the bloke from Oldham. That was a, a, a yeah, little... The Grandmaster. Bit, bit, there was that amazing shot right near the start with Rocky carrying the fridge up up the favela stairs yeah, and it just it draws back and mm. all you can see is the stairs going on and on. Yeah. I mean, I've seen the Sainsbury's deliveries guys at my, my flat do the same thing on a council estate, so I wasn't <laughs> as impressed as you. Uh, Stephen, what did you make of it? I found the voiceover incredibly annoying uh, and more, more the persona of the voiceover because of this we, we, our, you know, and this, you know, you tourists are coming here and we live in the favela, we live free, free of government intervention, we don't pay our bills, we don't pay tax. We don't, and then I started to get all right-wing and UKIP about it because they're sort of saying, oh, and the, you know, and the police are coming in and they're trying to get rid of the gun runners and the drug traffickers, as if that's a bad thing. And then they sort of, you know, they kind of double back a little bit on that, go, well, you know, it's it's a mixed blessing when you don't have drug gangs. And oh, that was f- Sorry, I'm swearing again. <laughs> it, was re- it was an odd sort of set up because it kind of made this sort of here's all these people who are just living this lovely world of harmony it's like no you're not you're all you know you're literally not paying bills you're not doing anything and what's wrong with them trying to clean up for the world cup you know there was a kind of uh, an assumption straight away that the favelas were good and everything else was bad that felt a bit weird to me because the favelas are, are not necessarily good you know what i mean nobody thinks a favela is a good thing it's where poor people live, but it doesn't mean it's a good thing per se, whereas the show starts with that assumption and holds that assumption. And I thought that was an odd, objective point of view, you know? Do you, I mean, it felt like it, its voice and its view was a bit at odds with each other at times. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it felt like the voiceover had been written after they'd done a documentary on the favelas, and they'd slightly skewed it to be this sort of slightly clever, clever, you know, we're so cool in the favelas and you tourists are kind of awful imperialist wankers that are coming over to enjoy the World Cup. It's like, well, is there something wrong with that? You know, you're bringing in money, you're clearing up. You, and then it was just, it's just an odd, a slightly odd setup. And that kind of, that felt jarring to me because the actual favela documentary was very traditional, you know, to see the stories, to find out the kind of... Uh, but I, I would agree with Pete, it was very stretched. I mean, that was a half-hour documentary stretched into an hour. I felt no connection with the rest of Rio. You know, it was welcome to a favela, 
there's 200 odd favelas or 800 favelas, I think it was one of the statistics of cleaned, pacified 200. But it was it, it didn't really teach me anything about the, the 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 mix. You know, how can the rich live in, in Rio at the front and the favela right behind? I mean, it was interesting, but it was a bit at odds, I thought. Yeah. Do you think it offers a decent insight before the World Cup? No, um, no, I don't. I, I think I'll be looking forward to the World Cup a bit more than, than the next episode of this documentary. I mean, it felt like all the stories with all the characters had a sort of a logical conclusion and that sort of jarred with me a little bit because that's just not real life. Yeah, I mean, you know... It, or does that just, it, does slightly, it have to be that way? It's obviously slightly more set up than, than it's come... It, it yeah. just had a slightly, a slightly weird feel, the, the whole film, really. And it all came from this sort of attitude of, is this a sort of picturesque tale? Is this a hardcore objective documentary? Or is this a sort of, actually, you know, Brazil is, is raping its own people for the benefit of the World Cup and this is kind of a political... You know, it was a sort of... A, it kept shifting a little bit. And it was odd because Rio itself is obviously fascinating from an editorial perspective. I mean, the money, the sex, the, the, the wealth, then the dirt poverty and all the rest of it is incredible. But somehow that keeps going. But didn't that didn't come across, you know, and, I, and that's what I mean about stretch. They, they could have had the three episodes could have been one show. You know, when it said at the end, the trail was uh, next week, we're going to see the drug traffickers. Yeah, we should have seen them straight away. You know, they're the people that control the favelas, you know, not Rocky with his fridge. Pete, even that won't bring you back the the, the temptation to watch the the drug dealers. No, I I, I think the, the 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 temptation is over, and especially I'm sure there'll be more fridge lifting. So I, I I'm not too bothered about the next episode. So we can celebrate some positive previews <laughs> on this edition of Talking TV. A very underwhelming <laughs> yeah. set of TV shows um, coming your way. Apologies, dear listener. Um, <laughs> we'll leave it there. That is all we have time for on this edition of Talking TV. All that remains for me to do is to thank our guests, Stephen D. Wright, Peter White and Hinterland's Ed Thomas. I've been Jake Cantor and the producer was Matt Hill. Join us again in a fortnight for another helping of television treats. You've been listening to Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios.